All right, we're still in Ephesians chapter 2, and if you want to look with me, we're at Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, of course. If you were with us last week, uh, you remember that we're sort of in the middle of a two-part message. Last week, we looked at verses 1 through 3, and let me sort of sum up uh, last week. Last week was bad news, and this week is good news. So if you weren't here last week and you're here this week, congratulations, you chose well. But let me just very quickly, because the two parts of these, this passage are so connected, I want to very quickly uh, review and remind us of some of what we looked at last week, if you don't mind. So last week, we asked this question, how bad is our bad? And the answer was, if you don't remember, our bad is worse than we think. you remember that? So we had three ideas, and again, this is review from last week, and if, if you weren't here last week, you can always go onto our website and, uh, and pick up last week's message. But we had three ideas that were helped us think through that our bad is actually worse than we think. And the first thing is this. We weren't just sick, we were dead. We weren't just sick, we were dead. In our sin, we're completely separated from God, and God is the source of our life, both spiritual life and physical life. So all of us one day will experience the effects of our deadness in our sin, And that is, every one of us will one day face the day of our death. We don't need to just get better. We need to be raised from the dead. So how bad are we? We're we're not just sick, we're dead. All right, the second thing we talked about last week was this. We didn't just make mistakes. We walked with the devil. Our rebellion against God wasn't an accident. It wasn't unintentional, we sort of stumbled into doing bad things, we acted and we walked according to our nature, and our nature was this, we're children of the world and its corrupt systems, and the Bible tells us that this world and its rebellion is empowered and ruled by who? The devil. So we didn't just make a couple of mistakes. No, absent the work of Christ, our allegiance is firmly in the camp of the world and the devil, and we are in outright rebellion against God. We realized we needed to be delivered, actually, from slavery to this world and slavery to the devil. What we learned last week is that our sin is not something we can sort of manage, we can sort of keep in check. No, our sin is the means by which the devil is seeking to destroy everybody. All right, finally, our understanding about how bad our bad is, which is how bad? Worse than we think. And you say, well, I heard the message last week, so now it's not worse than I think. No, no, no. What did we say? No matter how bad you think it is, it's worse than you think. Finally, we're reminded that uh, in the Scripture from the Bible that we aren't just trapped in this. We aren't just trapped in this situation. In fact, we loved it. We love being trapped in the world. Our flesh, our bodies, tainted uh, from the world and tainted from our sin, we, we desire the pleasures of this world. Uh, we desire the passions that this world seeks to satisfy. We're in prison, but in our normal and our natural state, we love being in prison. This prison offers us everything we think we ever could want or need. So we reflected on the fact that as Christians, we still bear in our bodies the brokenness and the passions that we inherited from our 
uh, sin in this world. And so we have to be uh, aware that it's very arrogant for us as Christians to think falsely that the worst sin we will experience is sin that's out in the world. In fact, Paul said it this way in Romans chapter 7. He said, who will deliver me from what? This body of death. Paul wasn't worried about what the world was doing to him. Paul was worried about, about the fact that even as a believer, he was constrained and working through the tensions of wanting to follow God, but having a body that led to evil passion. So we have to acknowledge that our struggle with sin is real. And it's not a struggle because we hate sin. Why is it a struggle? It's terribly fun. We love it. So with that in mind, we said this. We had to walk away from a judgmental attitude. Do you remember this? We need to walk away from a judgmental attitude because we know that for each and every person we meet, Christian or non-Christian, the struggle is real. The, the tension is real. But at the same time, we're going to abandon any sense of permissiveness with sin in our life because we're much more aware of how destructive it is. We see what sin does, and it should frighten us. So in humility... Uh, we understand the struggle is real, and there's a real tension uh, that exists both in us and our brothers and sisters in the Lord about what is right and what our desires are, our fleshly uh, desires are. So in that, we should love one another, we should support one another, we should pray for one another to have victory over sin. But until the day that we find ourselves in heaven uh, comes, we are going to be affected by sin in our life. It's going to uh, affect us, it's going to draw us, and, and uh, it's going to be a terrible temptation till the day we go home. So what are we to do? That's the question we ought to be asking, this morning anyway. We're dead. We're in open rebellion. In our root, uh, in our core, actually we want to stay that way. What do we do about this? Well, I've got an idea. I wanted to share it with you. I don't hope you don't mind. There's nothing we can do. I mean, I'm not, I'm not being silly. I often am, but I'm not at this point. Dead people are dead. Dead rebels stay dead in their rebellion. Dead rebels who don't want to be anything other than dead rebels stay dead rebels. This isn't complicated, is it? If there was something that we could do, let's just imagine there was something we could do to no longer be dead rebels, we wouldn't do it. Why? Because we don't want to. We want to stay dead rebels. Why? Because we love it. If there was something we could do, and if somehow maybe we had the ability to do it, we wouldn't want to, so what do we do? Ephesians 2.4. Are you there still? But God. When we couldn't do anything, and in fact, when we wouldn't do anything, God did everything. Ephesians 2.4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses... But God, when we couldn't do anything, He did everything. The question you should be asking yourself is this. Why in the world would He do that? What would move Him to do such a thing? I mean, isn't that important to know? Why in the world would God, in the midst of our rebellion, 
seek to do everything we could never do, even though we wouldn't even choose to do it if we could. So what moves God to uh, intervene in, in our lives when we're dead because we rejected Him? Well, the first thing we have to understand is God's wealth. If you like taking notes, this is our first point. God's wealth. Verse 4, God being rich in what? Mercy. Because of the great love with she loved us. What would you do with an unlimited amount of wealth? If you had an unlimited amount of resources, money, whatever, what would you do with that? I mean, immediately comes to mind some things you might do if you had an unlimited supply of money. Maybe you would pay off your bills. You'd pay off your home so you wouldn't have a mortgage anymore. Maybe you'd replace a car that requires maintenance all the time, or the window doesn't go up and down, or the visor won't stay up. Do you hate that you can't get the thing to stay up? Somebody borrowed my car, it doesn't stay up. I, I got it back, they had, they had taped it up. It's <laughs> kind of funny. Um, what would you do with limitless wealth? What would God do with limitless wealth? Here's what's funny. Here's why it's a little bit tricky about that question. Number one, God already has it. Everything you might possibly dream that you could possibly want, that could possibly meet your needs or desires, He already owns. But see, here's the difference. When we think about limitless wealth, we're sort of assuming that what we can do is then we can gain something which will add something to our life or our existence. And that's not bad. What does God need added to Him? Nothing. God is completely self-existent. If he, there is nothing He could possibly buy that would add to His contentment, His joy, His happiness, His glory. Number one, He already owns everything. Number two, this stuff is so silly to think that it might add something to God. So what in the world would God do with limitless wealth? He wouldn't even need it. So what is God rich in if being rich in wealth as we understand it is of no use to him. It's meaningless. It's worth nothing. The Bible says he's rich in mercy. He has amassed mercy. He has stored for himself up, if I can put it that way, mercy and love and affection for us. God never dies unless he means to in Christ. God never tires. God never gets bored. So how does God uh, obtain wealth and expend wealth? It's mercy and it's love. The more that God spends, if I can put it that way, using the terms from the passage here, His riches of mercy, the more He spends His mercy, the more He spends His love, the more He expresses to us in all of creation who He is and what He is like. So every bit of mercy He expands, it communicates to all of creation how merciful He is. So what He gains from His wealth is the communication to us of the extent of His mercy. The more He expresses His nature, the more we understand the truth of what His nature is like, merciful and loving. God spends His mercy like a billionaire spends His money. He does not need to pull out his checkbook and make a note when he buys a coffee. That'll be $5.75, sir. He, he just puts a $10 bill out and walks away. 
He's not going to account for the $10 because the time it would take to account for the $10 would cost him more in his time. And God is the same way with His mercy. He has so much of it, He spends it in a carefree nature. He's not miserly with it. He receives the glory of never-ending riches of mercy. The Bible tells us His mercies are new every morning. Every day, we cash in His mercy all day long. We come up the next morning, we check the account balance, it's the same. Because it never runs out. It's brand new every day. His mercy is, He is rich with mercy. He is uh, overwhelmingly rich with love that He pours out on us. Excuse me. Have you ever asked yourself this question? How could God love me? Maybe in the quietness of your own heart, you've done something really, really awful, or you've, you've thought something really, really awful. How could God love me? Isn't that an interesting question? I mean, everybody's asked that question at some point in their life, haven't they? It's going to be embarrassing if you say no, then I'm going to feel on the spot. We understand, though, if we really think biblically about that question, it's a ridiculous question. I'm not saying you're ridiculous for thinking it. But when we look at the Bible, and we understand God's nature, and what he's, how he, God is described in terms of the immensity of His wealth, the question is not, how could God love me? What's the question? Knowing who He is, knowing what He has, the question should be, how could He not? Because we have to understand this. The fact that He loves us is not predicated on our ability to be lovable. The fact that He loves us is conditioned on Him loving. How's He doing in the love category? Rich. Loaded. Daddy Warbucks, is that a guy? Is that Annie? How could God love me is the wrong question. If His love is not conditioned on our lovability, but His love is conditioned on how much love He has, the question actually is the reverse. How could God not love me? And the fact is, it's not possible for God to not love you. Did I say that right? Did I do it? Okay, thanks, Joe. Okay, you go to a party, you got a really, really rich friend, and they've got a big old house, big old pool, and it's a summer party, you're going to go out back, and they're going to have a big pool party. There's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people there. Party is catered. It's open soft drinks. <laughs> I don't know if I'm allowed to say that yet. It's, everything's luxurious. There's live bands in every room. You stay there all night. You, you eat lobster tail and steak, and you put a little vegetables on your plate to feel like you did something healthy. And it's, it goes for hours and hours. Hundreds and hundreds of people gorge themselves on luxurious, expensive food and expensive drink and entertainment. And on your way out, you greet the host and you thank your host. And you pull out of your pocket four $1 bills wadded up in a ball. And you grab his hand and you slap at his hand. You say, you know what? I just want to thank you and do my part. There you go. Thank you. And the host is generous. He's kind. I mean, he's invited somebody like you to his party. <laughs> he, he's, I thank you. And he puts it in his pocket. But in his mind, in his heart, he's, first of all, it's a little bit silly, isn't it? You ate $4,000 worth of lobster tail. And 
The fact is, he wanted to bestow, he wanted everybody to have a good time. And, and, and the fact is, this party cost him nothing. It's not going to make a dent in his net worth. To offer the host money, I mean, it's, I mean really, it would be insulting, wouldn't it? It'd, it'd be terribly insulting. And this is God. He comes to us with this, this love, and he says, here it is. I'm just going to pour mercy out on you. We're in, we're in his party of mercy and love, and we walk in, oh, God, I'm sorry. I, um, I threw something at the mirror in the bathroom, and I broke it. He shows you what's funny? It doesn't even matter. I mean, I've just got so much. I've got a whole warehouse of mirrors. His, his, his love is like the, the host who is so wealthy that for him to bestow, for us, it feels almost uh, too much. And for God, though, we don't... He, because of his wealth, he's saying, it, it never ends. It's not a big deal. And, and this is the means by which you know who I am and what I am like. How could God love me? That's the wrong question. How could he not? He is God. He must love you. Not because of you, but because of what he is like. Now, we often associate wealth and earning and money and riches with work, and in fact, God is working. So, what is God working on? Let's look at verses, excuse me, 5 and 6. Let me just read them again. God, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. But God, what is God doing? What is God's work? A lot of times when we look at famous, the lives of famous people and people in history, we will look at their life and say, what is their crowning achievement? What is their legacy? What is the main thing that they did? What is their, um, what is their uh, main uh, thing that they're remembered for? And we might remember uh, Churchill as guiding uh, Great Britain through World War II. We might remember George Washington as uh, leading us uh, as a country in the Revolutionary War. Uh, recently, a gal named Shal- Shalane Flanagan, I don't know if I said that, you've heard of this lady? First American woman to win the New York Marathon. I mean, she's going to remember this forever. We, the first time an American woman has won uh, the New York Marathon, at this point she's saying, this is my thing. I have won, I have come in first place in the New York Marathon. When we look at God and His work, what is His magnum opus? What is His crowning achievement? He raised Jesus from the dead. He sent Christ to die on the cross on our behalf, and Jesus didn't stay dead. Jesus, God in the flesh, was raised from the dead, and He raised Jesus from the dead. Pretty incredible. It gets crazier. I mean, look at what it says. When we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. So this is what happened. He says that Jesus, He dies on the cross for our sin. The Bible describes it this way. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might receive the righteousness of God in Him. So Jesus dies and bears on Himself the curse. He defeats sin and death on the cross and in the grave, is raised from the dead, and God says, wait, I got an idea. Why don't we raise up all the dead sinners with you? And Jesus, of course, oh, 
Let's do it. And so Jesus isn't merely raised from the dead. All those who are in Christ, what does it say in the verse? In our trespasses. You might say, well, that's good that Jesus was raised from the dead. He was perfect. And God said, I've got a great idea. Let's raise up sinners in their trespasses that they might be made alive together with Christ. And in Christ we receive His what? His righteousness. He raises Jesus from the dead. He raises us up with Him when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Once again, what could we have possibly done in that moment? Nothing. But God decided, Jesus, when I raise you from the dead, I'm going to raise up the dead sinners with you. We have a union with the sinless Christ when we trust Him for salvation. When we put faith in Christ... For salvation, we as dead sinners are united with the risen, righteous Christ. He becomes sin for us, and we are raised with Him in righteousness. And where does it say we end up? In heaven in the corner, right? I want you to feel real bad about what you did for a long time. No. He raised, this is verse 6, He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places. I'm going to raise my son up. I'm going to bring him to glory, and I want you to come with him. I want you to share in his glory because you share in his righteousness. I want you to share in his glory because you share in his life. We are in in trusting Christ. We have union with Christ. We share in his life. We share in his righteousness. We share in his position. And we don't have the same authority as Christ. I don't want to misspeak there. He is, in fact, still the Son of God. But we are with him in heaven forever. This is God's crowning achievement, not merely raising Christ from the dead. He raised a bunch of yahoos like us from the dead with Him. This is what God is like. This is what God wants to tell us about Him. He doesn't just raise Christ from the dead. He says, I want to raise sinners from the dead. Maybe you've you've asked yourself this question. How could God ever use someone like me? You ever asked yourself that question? Certainly you have. How could God ever use someone like me? I've done all the wrong things in all the wrong places. In fact, it's not even that. I'm planning on doing some wrong things. I've got, I've got them on my calendar. It's not that just that my sin is in my past. I've got some pretty home run kind of stuff come up in my future. God could never use Someone like me. Have you ever asked yourself that question? How could God use someone like me? It's not what you've done to be used by God. His legacy, His magnum opus is this. I'm just going to come and raise you from the dead. God, you have no idea what I've done. He says, first of all, I do. It's much worse than you imagine. And that makes you raise him from the dead, bring me all the more glory. I can raise a rebel like you from the dead. He does all the work. How could God ever use someone like me? And God says, how could I not? I raise dead sinners in Christ. I I don't just raise him from the dead. I take him with Christ in his righteousness into the heavenly places and seat him with him. Not in the corner, not with the dunce cap on, not with the just barely squeaked in, but God didn't want me in. 
He seats us in the heavenly places with Christ. Did you notice any qualifiers in the verse there for the really bad Christians who are in the junior level seats? I was looking for it because I had a couple of people in mind. No, it's not there. It's not there. They're seated in the heavens. There's righteous in Christ. One author put it this way. I love this quote. Throughout time and in eternity, the church, this society of pardoned rebels, is designed by God to be the masterpiece of His goodness. Throughout time and in eternity, the church, this society of pardoned rebels, I love that, society of pardoned rebels, that needs to be a t-shirt, is designed by God to be the masterpiece of His goodness. We think God's masterpiece is when we get everything all lined out. God's masterpiece is to take the most messed up people and demonstrate His mercy and love and His goodness to us. But God, God's wealth is immeasurable in mercy and love, and God's work, His crowning achievement, is raising up dead rebels with His Son, Christ, in righteousness. All right, finally, last thing we want to mention here in verse 7. Today we think um, generally that God is doing all of this to make us feel better about ourselves. I mean, it's just sort of how the modern mind works. God is obviously doing all these things because He doesn't want me to feel bad about myself. Um, but that's not it. I don't, I don't want to make you feel bad. Um, but this is not why God is doing all of this. God is, in fact, not doing all of this to make us feel better about ourselves. God is doing all this to make us think better about Him. Verse 7. I'll begin verse 6. God raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He's doing this. Why? Because He wants to show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness to us. We understand first we understood God's wealth, then we looked at God's work, and here finally in verse 7, God's purpose to show His immeasurable grace and kindness. Again, talking about wealthy individuals, excuse me, you think about the world's wealthy elite, say somebody is a multiple, multiple billionaire, and they want to make sure that everybody knows that they're very wealthy. And I'm not uh, speaking ill, I would do the same thing, likely. But it's rude to carry a sign on your chest that says, I have this much money. I mean, apparently, that's rude and in poor taste. So what do you do when you want to make sure everybody knows you have lots of money, but you don't want to wear a sign around saying how much money you have? You, well, you buy six different houses in six different countries, and you buy a yacht that you go on every three years. You buy a jet that you fly on. You no longer fly commercial. You buy a garage full of cars that are rare and impossible to buy, and you never drive them, and you only go out and look at them when friends are over. So you, so you do things to demonstrate, look, look, I'm loaded. I can buy a garage full of priceless cars. It doesn't even make a dent in my bank account. So God has made all of the universe. God has made everything. How does God demonstrate and display His wealth? Specifically here, the Bible is telling us about His wealth is in grace and kindness. How could God? He, God wants to show us quite clearly that He's wealthy in grace and kindness, and He wants to demonstrate it to us. 
And how could he do that? I want you to think about it this way. I want you to think of somebody in your life that you would describe them this way. They're the kindest person you've, you know. Like, I mean, they're always doing stuff nice. Every time you see them, you know they're going to do something nice. When they show up someplace, you're like, oh, good, they're here. They're so nice. I know what, after I'm done talking to them, I'm going to feel good. They're always helping. They're always kind. How do they display their kindness to you? Is it kind words? Is it it gestures of service, uh, gestures of gifts? Think, I mean, you you know people that are kind, right? You know at least one person? Is it you? I don't know. Maybe you say, well, I'm the kindest person I've ever met. Probably not then, by the way. (laughs) This may be hard for some of us to get our head around, especially, and I don't mean this in a mean way, but especially those of us who grew up in a church. God is the kindest person you've ever met. I mean, did you know that? If, that, that God is absolutely, without question, based on the truth of His Word, the kindest person you have ever met. If you met Him, this would be the, in person, and you had a conversation, this would be the, the first thing that would pop up in your mind after He left talking to you. You'd say, man, He is so kind. And why do I say that? Especially, why do I make my comment why, for, for those of us growing up at church? That probably wouldn't be the, the first way we would describe God. And, and the fact is, think of somebody in your life that's really religious. And would you call that person kind? And there might be certainly many cases where you know people who are very religious who are also kind. But isn't it true that we know many religious people who say, well, they're good. They're very well behaved. They don't do anything that makes my eyebrow go up. Are they kind? Well, you know, when they walk in the room, I gotta, I'm, now I feel like I've got to be on. I've got to be dialed in. What if I say the stuff I say when they're not in the room? What if they discover what I'm really like? Well, see, the problem is, for those of us who grew up in church and in a religion, is we sometimes assume that since religious people can sometimes not be kind, their God must also be kind of a big meaning. And what we have to realize is the truth we know about God must come from His Word, not our experience. We may associate religion with callous judgment, but God, He is kind. He is honest. He always tells the truth. But he is the most kind person you will ever meet, hands down. His grace and his kindness, in fact, are completely undeserved. I would actually suggest this based on verse 7 of Ephesians 2, is that in order to experience the kindness of God, I must not deserve the kindness of God. That's the only way to experience God's kindness, is to have it undeserving. A religious person says, I'm not that undeserving because I have not done anything that bad, and therefore they never enjoy God's grace and kindness. The gospel says, until I'm made new in heaven, I'm undeserving. Until the day is realized that I am made new in heaven, I don't deserve His grace, I don't deserve His kindness, so what does that mean I get to do undeserving? Enjoy His grace and kindness. 
He's kind to rebels like us. Maybe we need to let go of our need to be impressive. If God's purpose is to demonstrate to us His grace and kindness, maybe it's time to stop needing so bad to be impressive for Him. Maybe what we ought to do is instead enjoy what God is all about, showing His grace off to you, pouring His kindness out onto you again today. What's God's purpose in saving us? To finally get us to behave right. I mean, not the way we behave, it's the other guy. It's so irritating. Not, what did we say before? Nothing is more irritating than the way somebody sins that's different than you. God's point is to show off His grace to you. Let me just, and you don't have to answer out loud. <laughs> Heaven forbid, don't answer out loud. Is God have ample opportunity in your life to show off His grace to you? I mean, just take a quick review of your day. I mean, it's not quite noon yet. I mean, some of us have hit some sin out the park today, have we? I've driven to church with kids. We will get there and you will love Jesus. I mean, husband and wife in a car, icy daggers stairs. Tiny, I'm sorry, that was inappropriate, it's too soon. That was unintentional. That was totally unintentional. Staring at you, I cannot believe I married you. My mom was right. Mom was right. Pull in the parking lot, get out the door, hold hands, walk in. She's gripping with nails. You can't, nobody can see. We need God's grace today. Somehow in our religious minds, we thought because we needed God's grace, he was like, oh, man, I got to give him grace again. You realize he's just like, oh, here we go. I get to show off my grace, and perhaps they'll see how gracious I am, and, and maybe they can see how kind I am. This is going to be amazing. And maybe you think I'm making this up about God. Just read your Bible. Am I reading it wrong? He's not the big meanie you thought he was. A big meanie God does not send His Son to die on, his, on the cross for dead rebels and then raise Him up with the dead rebels. That's not what a meanie God does. That is a God who just has so much reserves of mercy, love, and grace, He just wants to pour it out. Maybe we can finally just say, you know what, I'm just going to enjoy it. Bring it on, God. By way of conclusion, I'm going to read a passage from Ezekiel 37. You don't have to turn there. If you want to, you can. I'm going to read Ezekiel 37, 1 through 14. Excuse me, and then just we'll have uh, a couple of concluding remarks before we end. Ezekiel 37. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and He brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O oh Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, 
prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So, I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone, and I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them. And they lived, and they stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people." Excuse me, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place in you, excuse me, I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. So Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 describes us the way Ezekiel 37 describes that valley, dead, dry bones. Without the work of God, we are dead, we are dry, and we are bones, and there is nothing that we could do. What, could, what is it that brings life to the bones? When I was reading that, that, that story from Ezekiel, what is it that brings life to the bones? What, what is it that puts flesh on the bones? What is it that fills the lungs of these skeletons. Was it religion? Was it good deeds? Was it the bones doing more good than bad? Was it the bones making sure they were better than most of the other dead bones? I mean, it's ridiculous. One dried-out skeleton on the floor making fun of another dried-out skeleton because he's missing some ribs. Certainly, I deserve to be raised. I have all my ribs. It's ridiculous. But that's what empty religion gets you. Two dead people arguing about who's the most dead. But religion, good deeds, trying to be good, will never put flesh on dry bones. Only one thing can put flesh on dead, dry bones, and it's not good works. What is it that puts flesh on, on dry bones? good news. We have good news. Good news. God is wealthy. And He's not wealthy with the empty stuff of this rotting world. He has amassed a fortune of mercy. He has so much of it that it never runs out. 
He's filled his coffers with love. He has so much love that when we reject it, he gives us more love. When we don't appreciate it, he gives us more love. When we spurn his love, what does he do? He just keeps giving us love because he has so much of it. He spends his mercy and he spends his love like a billionaire who has no concerns. He knows no matter how much mercy he gives you and how much love he gives you, he will never, ever run out of mercy and love for you. God is wealthy in exactly the way we need him to be wealthy. He is wealthy in mercy and love. Good news. God is at work. As dry bones, we can't do anything. Thank God he does everything. When we were dead, he made us alive. Christ died, we died with him. Christ blasted out of the tomb. He spikes the tombstone in the end zone. I made that part up. He says to death and he says to hell, you're finished. You cannot hold me. God raised him up because he is God. God raises us up with him because he is God and his uh, grace is so, no, so enormous he couldn't do, any, do it any other way. There was no plan B. There was only God expressing his grace by raising up dead sinners with Christ in his righteousness. Good news, God's purpose does not depend on us. His plan does not depend on us being awesome. His plan depends on Him being awesome, and He's awesome. In fact, that's what His plan is for, to show all creatures for all of time the immeasurable extent of His grace and His kindness for us. When we were dead, our whole universe was centered on us. God does exactly what he needs, what we need, I should say. He moves the focus off of us and puts the focus of the whole universe on him. He, in fact, he gives us the joy of giving us salvation with a salvation that is not primarily about us. We get all the benefits of him saving us, and he bears all the weight and the glory of it. When this happens, we're finally freed from being the center of our own universe. Now, certainly, we want to be the center of our universe, but when this happens, when finally we agree that God is the center of the universe and we are not the center of the universe, we finally get to enjoy what we, we could have been doing all along. We're made to be the worshiper, not the worshipped. We're made to have Him on the throne, not us on the throne. And when these things are made right by His work in us, He becomes the center of the universe. We become the worshipers. We get to enjoy the immeasurable benefits of worshiping God in righteousness. We get the glory of being His sons and daughters. We get to rest at no longer having to be so important. We get to have the joy of no longer having to chase the hunger of our passions because we can be wholly satisfied in Him. Excuse me. All right, are you ready to let go of your false views of God? I hope so. I don't know where you picked up those false views. You might have picked them up from the world. You might have picked them up from your own experience. Like many of us, you might have picked up some false views about God in church. And maybe it's time to have the good news 
of the gospel inform us of the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness. Is that good news? When is His mercy going to run out for you? Wednesday? Never. Some of you are saying challenge accepted. Here's what's funny about that. Here's what's funny about that. I'm, I'm being dead serious. That's not, a, that's, not a, that's not a real wise way to live. But say you say, you know, challenge accepted. I'm going to push God on His mercy. It's never going to run out. And one day you're going to discover that mercy is more satisfying than that other stuff. There is nothing on planet Earth that will make you full. It'll make you full for a minute, maybe 10 minutes, maybe a year. At some point you realize you're not. And when you turn to Christ and say, oh, I'm sorry, is your mercy still there? You say, what are you talking about? My mercy's been there the whole time. That's what I do. Will you trust what His Word says about Him and trust that His good news is true? How do you gain life in God through Jesus? Not by doing good works, but by believing good news. Trust Jesus, and He will give you His life and His righteousness. Uh, Christians as well, we need to keep this in mind. Life in Christ uh, comes through believing good news, and the work of God in us to make us like Christ is also through the gospel, the good news. The power of the gospel, the good news the, uh, of, of God who saves us is also the power that makes us like Christ. The glory of God is, dis- is displayed in you as a Christian, not when you muster up the strength to, to be super good or do some fancy good deed. The power of God is displayed in you when He shows His immeasurable grace to you. We want to think that the power of God is shows up in us when we do something awesome. It is. It is more so when He gives us His awesome grace again for that same silly sin that we promised we'd never do again because we thought we had to tell Him we would never do it again for Him to show us His mercy. And He shows us His grace over and over again. Christians, are we ready to set aside the drudgery of trying to be a good Christian And just walk with Jesus in the good news that God is rich in mercy? God has done all the work to give us life in Christ, and He wants to show us off to all of creation that He is pouring out His grace on us. Are we willing to believe that when God said, I began a good work in you and I will complete it, are we willing to believe that's true? And it doesn't require us, it only requires Him. If so, if you're ready to believe these things, you're no longer dry bones. Life will fill your lungs, and you'll breathe in, and you'll breathe out. I'm alive in Christ. I rest in His kindness. Come soon, Jesus. But until then, let me live as one who is alive. Jesus.